So I'd like to begin this morning with just an open field of checking in. Are there any lingering questions that haven't had a chance to be asked? Any reflections that have wanted to be shared about where we are so far with the first and the second foundation of mindfulness, about the refrain, about the practices? Yeah, and so what, what you're describing again is um, that mind-body connection. That um, there can be a vedana, there can be an emotional vedana, which is the pleasant. It's not that the vedana is an emotion, but the emotion can have a vedana. And then because our nervous system is innervates the entire body, if the heart opens, you can feel it sometimes reflected in the body, and so there can be a positive. Uh, pleasant vedana with the heart opening, and then the way that that affects the body can cause pleasant vedana as, as physical sensations, and then a collection of thoughts can stream through in association, and they can be pleasant. And then one of them might take a turn and get a little sad or judgmental or something, and that's a little bit of unpleasant. So there's multiple layers as we go through the stream, and the stream of the present moment is so rich. It's so multi-layered, and one of the amazing things is that our nervous system will um, reinforce experiences, and one of the ways it reinforces it was um, having the sense of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and that tends to have us try to repeat pleasant experiences, tend to wake up and problem-solve unpleasant experiences. And if we're not awake, the neutral experiences there's just too many things to track. So the neutral ones, the reinforcement is, I don't need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. My, the important things are the pleasure and pain, and a whole category of neutral is not that important. And with training, we can actually find, we can meet neutral experiences, pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences. Yes, um, I am feeling completely overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. But um, um, what's happened is that it's like the reservoir opened in the, on the river. <laughs> right. And I have had a thing, I've been caught in multitasking. I don't want to multitask. And to me, starting with internal external arising, yeah. passing, and now this, 
it's I, I'm like over examining everything. That's so great. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. So the the path has these very predictable bricks on it. And it's not that you've stepped off the path into a ditch and then have to be guided back onto what the true path is. The path has one of the very clear repeating steps on the path is an overwhelm. And we get overwhelmed for a number of reasons. And so it's interesting to see what the constellation of forces are that's opening for overwhelm. As we all go from numb and small to feeling and that and enlarging, that transition is going to pass through more sensation than we can deal with in ordinary life, which is why we shrink and just deal with, you know, I, I can only handle this much. I get overwhelmed. And then we get overwhelmed, the box gets even smaller. And so as we wake up, we feel more. And we're not used to feeling more. And then there's a sense of like, wait, I'm flooding. I'm flooding here. So it's so predictable that as people actually wake up, they get overwhelmed. That I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Because also predictable, but um, on the other side, it is actually um, like I've been through periods that are harder, which is actually very densely stuck in a certain frame and not overwhelmed, kind of bored, kind of like there's nothing new. I'm not, my mind is an opening and I'm just kind of like very stuck in the mud and it's not overwhelming. It's overwhelming in the fact that I, I get kind of um, flat in the middle of it. That also can be hard. Um, but it's also a step on the path because there are, as we pass through life, Really, if you look at, you know, you have three primary colors. That's already a lot because there's three of them. But after a while, we, mem- we memorize them. Three, I got three. But then, if you let them interact, you get all the colors. And if you actually look at a really detailed color wheel, and then people putting little arrows to what that part of the color wheel is called, where, where is burnt orange from, you know, sunflower orange or yellow, like... And then there's a whole gradient between burnt orange, and it's like, wait, that's way too many colors. <laughs> if you're trying too hard to name it and understand it and get a hold of it, and if you can relax by like, oh, it's the color wheel. It's the color wheel. It's vast. And there is, there's, we'll easily run out of language to describe all the possibilities in the color wheel. So when I'm overwhelmed, <clears throat> one thing I do is just I simplify and I give myself permission to simplify. And I've been overwhelmed so many times that it's no longer, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, oh, I know. I know this neighborhood. I, <laughs> I was lost, but like, I know this neighborhood. This is overwhelm. With overwhelm, I simplify, I settle back. I settle back. It's just way too much, way too much. So enjoy your overwhelm. <laughs> know it as a human experience and rather than it meaning something and then having to deal with your interpretation and the meaning of it you say this is a flow of concurrent experiences it has actually a really good English word overwhelm 
knowing that and the direction of overwhelm is to step back, settle down, simplify. The more I know overwhelm, the quicker I go, I can't do this, they're expecting too much of me. Everyone's over here like, oh, overwhelm. Step back, simplify. Oh, there it is. I don't have to cut away this hedge of too many branches and it's all over. Like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Step back, drop in, simplify. And then <clears throat> be careful of some of the thoughts like, I'll never get it. Like, <laughs> that's not helpful. Step back, simplify, drop in. One breath, contentment. Oh, thank God. Okay, one breath, contentment. One breath, contentment. But everybody else, Step back, drop in. But I'll never, Step back, simplify. Oh, wait, here it is. Here it is. It's a step. It's a breath. And that was overwhelm. Ah, this is what overwhelm is like. This is what non-overwhelm is like. I now know the two of them. And I can talk myself out of that. The whole polycanon, what the... Step back, drop in. Then... I say, it's all about simplicity. And I try to then define it that way. And then my mind goes along and it goes into a different mode. The freaking thing won't stay in one mode. And then all of a sudden it begins to delight in the detail. And it's like, oh, I can, I can see it all. It's arising and passing. It's internal, it's external. A child could do this. It's amazing. It's so obvious. And it's like, okay, take note. This is not also a permanent state. You're just passing through another valence of the heart and the mind. It can be expansive. Oh, it's expansive. It's not a, you're not suddenly in a truth. It will always be like this. Oh, and one of the great things about being in Burma is there's just, I had a year to kind of get so familiar with the color wheel that it's like, ah, expansive mind, not you again. Okay, here we go. What a ride. Oh my God, oh my God, a child could do this. I remember you saying that last time. I remember, be careful. But, but, but I'll never go back into confusion. It's like my eyes are finally open and everything's working. And I, 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 oh, I remember this, I remember this. Don't plant a flag here, just pass through. Just pass through. It's like, ah, wait, what was it? What was it? Ah, oh, I just had it. Oh no, no, not, go, don't go down again. Don't, oh no, it's like, yep. Yeah. See, there's a little attachment there, and that's why we're suffering, because it was transient, it was brilliant, genius mind, and now we're going back to dumb as a post. <laughs> dumb as a post, yep. Let's see, two plus two. What is a two? Ah, Step back, drop in, simplify. And <clears throat> the freedom is in the ability to be oriented, to not cling and still be intimate as you go through. And more and more of yourself is not disorienting. Mm -hmm. So more and more of yourself, you kind of think, oh, I know where I am. I know where I am. I've been here before. Then you don't have to go on the 
the ride of that moment and all the things it's trying to tell you are true about the world. It's like you're on a, a river going, like the Mississippi River starts in Montana and the water that falls in Montana actually makes it all the way to Louisiana. So the river could say, oh, I know I am, I'm a, I'm a creek. I'm going through a forest. It's like, oh, where'd the forest go? Now I'm going through the prairies. Okay, now I'm a river going through the prairies. Oh, there's a canyon. Come on. Okay, now I'm a river going through a canyon. Okay, the canyon went. I'm back to the prairie. What'd you make up your mind? Okay, now I'm a, what am I now? What, oh, wait, wait, now I'm a waterfall. Okay, now I'm all about the waterfall. And the liberation is just, I'm a waterfall. I'm a canyon. I'm a prairie. I'm getting bigger. I'm now an ocean. Whoop, now I'm a rain cloud. Back in Montana. Starting all over again. That's the general direction to be oriented to all the various emotions that are possible, mental states, sense door experiences. So you rise and fall with capacity. And we like the up and we fear the down. But if you actually like, oh, I actually like it when my mind gets simple. Genius mind is exhausting. And it took me a while to finally get so exhausted of my own genius that it comes and it goes. But I also really love a warm cup of tea in my hand, taking that first sip and feeling the warmth. I'm like, ah, that's beautiful. It's just as beautiful as genius mind. So. And thank you for speaking for everybody in the room because everybody's going to pass through overwhelm. Is that relieving? Relieving. I, I just had a question about the numbing, the antithesis of overwhelmed. Is there a point in time to go somewhere else from that? Or did we do like you just said about this is just where I am right now and just let it be? So the question about. Um, when there's numbing, should we do something about it or just let it be? And <clears throat> in, um, there really is, unfortunately, two things you can always do. And it's just a matter of learning the art form. Deeper intimacy and acceptance, skillful intervention. Deeper intimacy and acceptance, skillful intervention. You actually have to kind of um, broaden both of these for them to both deepen. Interventions that don't know how to deepen intimacy, the interventions are shallow, they're not related, they don't actually know something well enough to do a good intervention. The more you know something, the, the more effective your intervention just knowing something without intervention is a little bit too passive. So we're all often deepening our intimacy with more sides of ourselves so that we can learn a skillful intervention. This is <clears throat> repeated throughout the discourses on mindfulness. So if you look at the mindfulness of breathing, there's knowing the bodily activity and then 
asking the bodily activity to calm. If you ask it to calm before you know it, it's repressive. If you know it and then invite it to be calm, you'll find there's a more global ease. And you come into a more holistic relaxation that hasn't been repressive. So knowing something before you invite it to be calmer or more conducive or more um, wholesome, that's repeated. Um, And one of the ways that's repeated that we'll see today and tomorrow is that we're moving into the third foundation of mindfulness and the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is knowing the heart and the mind and the way that they inhabit the body. Just knowing them, no intervention, the courage of no intervention. So that when you go into the fourth foundation, which is all about the skillful cultivation of your freedom and happiness, those interventions are really well attuned to what's actually arising. If you jumped all to those interventions, it's well intended, but you haven't known something well enough to know how to really guide it towards uh, true well-being. So there's a lot of overriding and repression. And then you go back and forth between these. When you settle more, you have more courage to know more of yourself without intervening. And that makes the interventions deeper. That gives you more courage to know yourself like you haven't known yourself more. And that makes your interventions much more skillful. And so when I was in, uh, when I was in Burma, I get so tired of asking this question, should I know it more or should I intervene? Should I know it more or should I intervene? And I would be with my breath and I said, okay, if the same thought comes and knocks on the door three times, I'll answer it. The first two times, I just want to know my body and not this thought. Know my body, not this thought. Okay, this thought's insistent. I'll turn my attention. I'll know this thought. I'll know it better. That allows me to relieve it. It doesn't bang on the door as much. So um, you're asking uh, a pretty central question, and it's really by intuition. And then different schools are more intervening, and the different schools are much more allowing to kind of know things but before you begin to intervene. Keep the precepts, but then don't intervene and just get to know things as they arise and pass. Get much more skillful about training yourself inside. It's a little bit more about early intervention. So there's not even a right or wrong. It almost could be personal temperament, whether you are more of that disciplined, intervening, training being, or if you're much more into the fluidity and non-intervention. So you get to explore. Um, the bare awareness and the clinging because oh, it feels good. I want to have 
savor this. And likewise, with um, something unpleasant that rises, when is it appropriate to let it pass? And then when, do you, when is there intervention and problem solving? So that part for me hasn't landed yet. It would be very helpful to hear it explained as we go into these next Sure. Yeah, and that's a, those two come <clears throat> later in the, the refrain because um, they grow out of the first two. And so when you, um, like for example, seeing the arising and passing nature of experience is really helpful for not clinging because you get to see how transient experiences are. And so the more familiar you are with the arising and passing, the fluid nature of experience... <clears throat> it's why we don't um, try to drink water with our hand. Why we don't grab it and put it in our mouths. By the time we get to our mouths, it's already dripped out. You can throw it at your mouth if you want, but cupping it is one thing. But grabbing water is really not... By now, we don't do it as a strategy for drinking because it's so fluid. <clears throat> so training in the arising and passing and getting more familiar with that makes the non-clinging more obvious. It also begins to train you in um, bare attention because <clears throat> if I think you're static, then I can build a really complex model of you, but then you go and change. My complex model doesn't make sense anymore. So the more fluid I actually relate to you, <clears throat> the more I actually stay in the present moment with you and I don't add on a lot of complications, except that it's a strong tendency. And so <clears throat> you can work on <clears throat> inviting your attention to be in more bare attention. So <clears throat> what's your bare attention of looking in my direction? Well, it's an invitation to drop in, and I don't want to um, out you if you're in the moment of asking the question, so you don't want to provide an answer. But my bare attention of you is that <clears throat> I'm getting to know you from yesterday, but what will happen is that I'm 50% with you today and 50% with you yesterday, and I'm actually sorting, my mind is sort of like going through both things you've said yesterday and kind of remembering. Because I'm trying to like get oriented to you through memory. And so some of what I'm interacting with is who you are right now today. But it's also being uh, made more dynamic by <clears throat> the memory I have. That's not unskillful to do that. But some of the real learning is if I'm going to build a model of you, I'd better actually know you. And so keep putting aside this co collection I'm building of who you are and finding actually I can probably at some point be so present with you that I don't actually need this storehouse of memories to know you. I can actually just drop in with you here and now. So it's a training to make sure that you actually are knowing things as they actually are and not... Um, constantly adding in all the detail of all the perceptions and memories from the past. Who are you today? Who are you now? Who am I today? Who am I now? 
the trick is I'm similar enough to who I was yesterday that you can default to your map of me versus the actual experience of me. And that happens. Um, uh, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I did a 12-day silent retreat with my father, and he was sitting right next to me. And about four days in, my mind really started to open, and I realized I have no idea who this human is next to me. Because I've run out of questions. I've heard, I think I've heard all his stories. So I think I've mapped him out, but I don't know who the first person he kissed is. Why has that never occurred to me to ask him that? And what was his favorite candy bar when he was young? And what color was his bicycle? And like, how could I, how could this be one of the closest humans in my life? And I, there's so little I know about him actually. And my father leads these uh, tours in Europe. He comes back and is like, how was the trip in Europe? Oh, it was great. What did you see? Oh, I went to this place in Prague. Oh, lovely. So what's going on now? Like this whole trip that he just had. It, it's so little time really knowing how to explore it with him. And I was like, wow, I, I barely understood this human being next to me. And so after the retreat, there was this beautiful period where we, were, uh, we spent about a week together. And my mind was so open. His mind was so open. I was just like, who was the first person you kissed? And what was the color of your bicycle? And like, when you got, you know, were you ever depressed in college? And like, I, I just like, all these new possibilities opened up. So it was the investigation of the bare experience of him. And it's a little bit like asking about his past, but there were times when, we, when, I, when I was sitting across from him at a meal and I was seeing him with fresh eyes as he was here and now, not as a person I had known my entire life. That's where we started to get into bare attention. And then it can be very simple. I mean, often bare attention is very simplifying. You know, what's the bare attention of this candle? What's the bare attention of this carpet? Well, it's got beige and brown and kind of a diagonal pattern in it. and And... So I'm going right in. What's the bare attention of it? And the bare visual experience versus it's a rug and it probably is made somewhere and they probably industrial carpet to make it endurable. That's a lot of concept. What's the bare attention of this carpet? What's the bare attention of your own hand? This hand you've had, the bare attention of it, it's from the inside, it's pulsing, it's warm, it's tingling, it's cool, I can feel the breeze. The bare attention is very immediate versus, oh, I know this hand. So that's the development of bare attention. And then the non-clinging is a development where you, you invite yourself to be as fluid as possible while rolling through the actual tapestry of your life. That what, how do you flow through these moments here? If they're mild and calming, then flowing through them is easier, but how do we flow through things where there's more charge, where there's more excitement, where there's more um, fear, where there's maybe more pain, where there's uncertainty? How do we actually have faith enough to flow through those experiences versus contracting or struggling? 
That's that's a that's a the invitation of what a completely free heart and mind are able to do. So that it's just the refrain. It's a practice, but it's the taste of that intimacy and fluidity to not cling, but still be intimate as you flow through life. And that's the training. Just like arising and passing is a training. How can I be intimate yet not clinging to the experiences or struggling? So I will we'll explore the refrain on the foundation today and the foundation tomorrow. Yeah. I, I was wondering how long it takes to accept all the neighborhoods. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the question is, how long does it take to accept all the neighborhoods? Um, how many licks to the center of a Tootsie Pop? <laughs> One, two, <laughs> three. Um, it's an ever-increasing... I mean, the what is just uh, either overwhelming or just the, the majesty of it is that there is always more. There's always like, like every time I try to define myself, there's an expansion. And there's a part of me that was unconscious before and I get conscious of it. So I'm doing a big thing now on um, putting effort into waking up to whiteness, that I'm white. <clears throat> been white all my life. But I haven't been consciously white. I've been a conscious white person but I haven't been conscious of, it, it's, it's not news, but the, the, I've been submerged in it and unaware of it. And now it's a whole new kind of fascinating thing. And someone said, you know, we're all racial beings, but when your race has been the dominating one, it comes along with some blindness to the fact that there's whiteness. And then there are multiple things to wake up on socialized, socialized identities, social identities. <laughs> Simplify, drop back, breathe. And at some point, it's, it's, a, it's a way to fall in love with yourself more, is to know you better. It's like I'm overwhelmed by having four limbs, so I'm just going to ignore my left leg. Yeah, three. Three, three. three works for me. But four, ah, I don't know, that's a whole thing. It's like, oh wait, that's walking. Hey, four is awesome, actually. So at some point, and it's, it's like if we all were artists, or if we all took painting classes, and someone put down all these little tubes, so many possibilities, and then mixing them, you're like, okay. It's like, okay, just work with yellow today and blend yellow with red and have fun with it. And if you spend time with it, I, get, um, I go to events where uh, Allie plays music and sings, and she does it so beautifully, I think, I want to do that. And I, it looks so easy. I could probably do that in a week. Like She makes it look so easy. I'm like, yeah, I'll just do that. And I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And then you see somebody who's put in their time and they have um, capacity and it's part of you know, their temperament. And then the way that they can actually play multiple instruments 
and gracefully. So if you're learning anything, at, it's always overwhelming. I mean, teach anybody anything, and most people will pass through a period where they feel I can't do it, and they're overwhelmed. So it's why it's such a predictable experience when you're learning something new that you pass through, ah, oh my God. That's usually a time of, a time of expansion when you're realizing the amount of detail there. So rather than being overwhelmed, you can kind of pace yourself. Could you speak a little more about neutral? Because you said something about when you awake, you see, you didn't use the word nuance, but I interpreted that way, the nuances of neutral. Could you speak a little more about that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I can speak about (laughs) neutral. So on one of my uh, first couple of retreats, I was feeling a lot of physical pain, and it was during the meals that I would feel like, oh, I can do it, because the meal would come and I wouldn't be with the sitting pain, and it'd be kind of delightful. I really began to obsess about the lunches and like, oh, if I can just make it to lunch, just make it to lunch. And then enough mindfulness began to be cultivated that I actually started to be more present rather than escaping in lunch. I was able to be actually more present with all the stimulation of the noise and the actual food and all that was going on. And so then it was pizza day and there's this great cooks that really knew how to make a really good crust. And I was like, oh my God, pizza day. And my mouth would be watering. I can't wait. I was actually was mindful through pizza day. It's like, okay, there's texture. There's flavor. Um, but the, the dream of it, of what it was going to give me, was so expanded over what the actual bare experience was. The actual bare experience, like, yeah, this is a flow of experiences. The pleasure, the anticipated pleasure was actually smaller. What I was doing before is I would imagine lunch, and then I would get it, and then I would imagine after the retreat while I was chewing on it, and then after retreat come, and I would imagine my next retreat. So if I stay in the fantasy realm, there's all this pleasure to be had. If you actually are mindful, it's pleasant, but it also comes and goes. There can be a moment where you lose, like, oh no, the world, the life is not that pleasant. But then you drop in and um, the ease, the intimacy, the, the awe can come from other places, not from pleasure. The awe comes, the reward comes from just the... Uh, the intimate possibilities of flowing through. And the Vedana isn't actually pleasant. It's neutral, but it's so um, exquisite that like, you know, clear water could be as neutral. It doesn't have fancy colors. It doesn't have murky mud, clear water. But the the relief of having it when you drink, uh, you're thirsty. It's the, the clarity is so um, pervasive and so uh, reliable and so 
um, awe-inspiring and the unknown mysteries, and you're just walking through the mystical universe, it's neutral, in the, but it's not neutral boring. It's not neutral bland. It just doesn't have this sort of excitement to it. It doesn't have the, um, the promise to it of something. It just is. But the isness of it is so exquisite that um, you don't need for it to taste sweet. You don't need for it to also have a candy coating. The actual flow through um, is beautiful enough. And then it will be sweet or unpleasant on its own. But there is a sort of a growing uh, neutrality. But the neutrality is not boring and it's not a reduction to blandness. Um, it's, it's quite exquisite. But it doesn't have that sugary taste of being pleasant. So... Mm-hmm. And um, really giving myself a lot of permission to not like work hard at this, mm-hmm. um, which is which is really relevant for my approach to things. It's been a nice relief. And as I've been watching that unfold, um, like the image that's coming through is like things are getting really still inside um, and quiet. And I really appreciated the Vedana inquiry that we did in our um, dyads last night. Because as that's happening, I am feeling like this bubbling up through that stillness of the Vedana. Hmm. And, and really being able to see that cusp of, oh, that's pleasant. Or, oh, that's unpleasant. And then the sensing of where the reaction was, I know. Hmm. And then having this little choice moment. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, you could be with this or you could just come back to this. And in watching a little bit of the reaction, I've been able to feel some very subtle emotions that I think were um, just being really kept down at the bottom mm-hmm. of that stillness. And there's all this space to just kind of See the the delicateness of it, and the, um, really titrate almost my way into it. Mm-hmm. And I'm appreciating that because it, it's letting me move very slowly between it, rather than you know it kind of coming and going and not having a sense of you can just stay with it. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to share that mm-hmm. that's what's happening, and I'm pre- and so grateful for the way that we had the opportunity. Beautiful, beautiful. And for everybody, you know, everybody's unique. And so how you're finding your way into it, some people might nod and have like, oh, actually that was similar. And some people like, hmm, that's funny, that's not my way in. But everybody will find their way in. And um, that's also kind of amazing that people do find their way. And then we're all constructed 
with some similar components, but different proportions. So everybody ends up being, you know, again, finding their way in. I like your description of how you found your way in. Yeah, I'm here. Just have kind of a technical question about the sutta. I think this is part of the sutta. So under Vedana, there was maybe a section on like mind states, and there were maybe some mind states described, like surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind. Yeah. And I was curious if those are just sort of examples from the color wheel of so many, or if they're if they're if they were chosen specifically. So under Vedana, when they talk about those mind states, that's actually the third foundation, oh. and it wasn't the way he went through the text. He doesn't put a number one, number two, number three. So the text flows on and the Vedana part is short and the mind states is fairly short. And then the fourth foundation is actually as long and complicated as the first one. It's many, many things. So we're moving on to the third foundation today. Yeah, just pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but it, it can be in the direct bear attention, it can be in the perception, it can be in the heart and the mind that are doing the perceiving. So it's kind of all over. There was a time that um, these um, monks who had been taught about Vedana differently met and they started having an argument. And this one monk said, no, no, I really listened. And he said, there were three Vedanas, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the guy said, no, 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 I was listening. He said, there were six. There's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral of the object and of the mental state. The guy said, no, 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 no. He said there were 18. There's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral at the eye door, at the ear door. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Remember, it's 108 because you get three of, the, three of the object, three of the mind at each of the sense doors, and there's past, present, and future. And, and so they go and they talk to the Buddha, and they said, yes, this is, Vedana is, you can treat it simply, or intricately, depending on how your mind is working at that time. But it's actually, it can be quite vast. It's a whole color wheel. It's not even three. It's a, it's a, you know, a spectrum. And then, as someone was describing yesterday, when really feeling into the body, it's like, there's so many sensations, and each one had its vagueness. Like, just my hand is, like, there's tingling and warmth, and I kind of like the warmth, but not the tingling. It's like, but... I don't mind the tingling here, but over there it's getting kind of aggressive. And what was that thing over there? I don't even know what that was. And what was the Vedana of that? It's, that's just my hand. So Vedana ends up being like a whole rich tapestry unto itself. It's worth drawing out because it's where a lot of our... It's where we forge relationships, consciously or unconsciously. We can forge an accepting, open capacity to meet it and then respond, or we can forge unconscious compulsions of how we... Um, meet our experience. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've been kind of exploring is my tendency to, to it's, this, it's basically the second arrow, my tendency to anticipate. Yeah. So, like for example, when we were walking yesterday and I was walking on um, like a, a wooden part on the other side of the, the main meditation hall, like I found myself like pleasant like, oh, I hope I don't get a splinter. That'll be really unpleasant. And as soon as that came up, it was like, ah. <laughs> and I was, but I mean, I kept walking. 
Um, it was pleasant, you know. Or like other moments too, like um, like when I went for a walk down the down the path over there, um, and I heard a noise. And I even brought a stick with me because there was warnings about rattlesnakes, and I'm making noise as I'm walking. And then there was a noise, and I immediately turned around and started walking back. And it's sort of this, you know. Um, so it, internally, what I've been focusing on is is that anticipation of, of pleasant and unpleasant. Yeah. Um, and even with, and I feel really bad saying this, but even with yoga, I was like, oh, I don't want to do yoga. Like, I really don't want to do yoga. And then I did yoga, and it felt great. And I felt really good in my body. So it's this, it's this kind of the, the realization of the anticipation of the, of the, of the unpleasant um, versus the pleasant. And I think that I'm probably less, I, I think I'm the type that I'm less grasping at the pleasant, um, but that, I think that depends. Um, and, and I think I tend to be a little bit more like, which we talked about earlier, sort of like anticipation, anticipating the pleasant. Yeah. And then finding the, the direct experience. Great, great self-discovery. One of the things that um, was described in this text they wrote a thousand years after the Buddha lived, called the Vasudhi Maga, is they say that there are um, temperaments ways that we've built our patterns. And some people are more, they scan for the unpleasant and they, they worry about it and they relate to things. Their, their mind is developed to be much more unpleasantly oriented. Some people are more pleasure oriented. And so they're scanning for where is the pleasure. And some people are more... Um, neutrally oriented, which means that they, in their unwakened state, are just a little bit more spaced out. They don't have a lot of reactivity because they're not picking up on much pleasure or displeasure. That's their strategy, is just to kind of not look at either one of them. And so these are called the, the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And then we all have all of them. So I tend to be an aversive deluded Except in uh, kitchen stores and camp- around camping equipment. <laughs> camping equipment are like, oh my god, I want one of everything. Ah, I want a blue tent and a yellow tent. Ah, I want the one-man tent, but I want the like six-person tent. And like, oh, the, don't even get me started with the kayaks. Oh my god, they're like so, and like the bicycles and the helmets and like the loud clothing and the gentle clothing. Oh my God. So, but my ordinary mind, I've trained it a lot, but it can be like, look at all the gum on the sidewalk. People, ugh. And I'm walking along, it's like, of course there's like all this cement. Where, where's the nature people come on? So my mind can grouse a lot. It's just kind of a default setting to kind of pick up the negativity. And that was actually valued in my family, which is one of the reasons it got reinforced was my my family likes grousing. They're not kind of like a pleasure-oriented family. They're academic and they like... Um, anyways, so we end up having temperaments and patterns and then tendencies. And as the two-arrow sutta describes, there's a first arrow and second arrow, but then that builds our temperament. And some people really get averse and they're just scanning for where the problems are going to be. And some people get very uh, drawn into the beauty, and that's their strategy. 
And so their mind's just constantly looking for what's beautiful. And then some people have, like, yeah, that whole thing is really complicated. I'm going to sit back and not really look for the unpleasant or the pleasant. I'm just going to hang out in the neutral consciously or unconsciously. That's one of the, the classic trainings is everybody needs to know everything more clearly, but then see if you can counterbalance the, the tendency. And um, one of the nice things, one of the bad things about being an aversive type is that you're constantly, your mind is constantly intimate with what the problems are. So there's sort of a constant stream of like, it hurts to be alive because you scan through the room and you don't pick up on the beauty, you scan through and you pick up on what's unpleasant. And so it just hurts. So that's the downside. The upside is that all of your practices, besides the clarity practices, are to see what's beautiful so that you don't just come up with a negative trend. So you practice loving kindness practice and they actually say in this book, you're supposed to have um, really good food. You're supposed to have really nice clothes. You're supposed to practice in a really beautiful place so your mind has a hard time going into the hole of the aversion. And yet it still will, but it's harder for it to do it. If you're a greedy type, <laughs> you're supposed to prove to yourself that uh, all this greed doesn't get you where you want to go. And so there's a lot of like being very intimate with the downside of food or sexuality or your sensations. And you're supposed to have tattered robes and being a tattered cabin with a kind of a nasty view of the dump. And you're supposed to do walking meditation next to the, the latrine or the garbage place. And if you happen to find an animal that's died near your cabin, you're supposed to sit and kind of watch it go through its stages of decay and it's just like, are you getting it? <laughs> like, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's like, okay, back to clarity practices, but depending on your temperament. Then deluded types are actually just looking for clarity. They're not looking to go one way or the other. So I used that excuse when I was in Burma, why I deserved good robes. I want those maroon robes. I, I still have an obsession around. <laughs> I haven't been a monk in 15 years, but I, I would ordain again just to wear that maroon. It's like a wine-colored robe. I was like, hmm, that's a good look. <laughs> Can you say more about deluded types? About a deluded type? Often deluded types, um, it's, a, it's a training to become deluded. And often deluded types I have found um, have been at points overwhelmed. And so aversives felt empowered enough to struggle with their negativity, so they stay conscious around the negativity. And greedy types um, were able to kind of like 
work their way towards pleasure. So that was a reinforced habit. The lid types, my experience has been that whatever they went through as kids often, it's just like, it's, it's so overwhelming. I really need a break. So I'm going to train myself not to know. I'm going to train myself to kind of just blur. It's like putting Vaseline on the, the video camera to get that dreamy effect. Just like, just want to blur the information. The information hurts. It's too confusing. It's too complicated. So I just want to be in a more fuzzy place. And, um, and then it becomes a default setting. And then you can kind of train in your own dissociation to be diluted. That often means as you go to the waking up process, if you're in a calm environment, it's safe to finally know life. But then at some point you end up coming in contact with why you wanted to check out to begin with. And Mm -hmm. there might be reasons why you wanted to dampen your relationship to life. So at some point you have to kind of go through whatever that experience is, what it means for you to be alive. Um, nice thing about being a deluded type is that there isn't a deeply reinforced aversion or craving. And so as the deluded types wake up, they wake up into equanimity. Um, that's harder for reactive people to find equanimity because the that's a whole train to undo the reactivity. Whereas deluded types tend not to want reactivity, which is why they fuzzed out to begin with. They don't like reactivity. So they tend to fuzz out. So as they show up, they don't then have to do a whole thing on reactivity. They just have to sustain their intimacy with what's overwhelming, but they don't have to work with so much reactivity. All these types also have a beautiful side. As they wake up, the underlying tendency um, can still be there. And so if you're really good at seeing the positive, but you're coming from a place of scarcity, you want the positive. But as you become more content and more free, your mind is still really good at seeing the positive. So it's very very easy to be generous and to really... um, see the positive sides of situations and not to be afraid of life. There can be like this really positive, sunny disposition, which can be beautifully wakeful. The aversives, when they wake up, tend to um, be good problem solvers because they are anticipating the problems. And aversion focuses the mind because it's, it really wants to kind of clarify and get right to what the problem is. And so they tend to be have um, very detailed attention. And then uh, deluded types tend to wake up and tend to be very balanced and very flexible and very malleable, the the good side of it. Do you think the hint of this, but a person can be a mixture of these things? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I go with all typologies. I think we all have all of them. I think we all have some Virgo and some Pisces in us. <laughs> I think we all have a Virgo. And I notice myself walking through, it's like I'm just floating along, a little aversive, but floating along. And then I happen to walk into, what's that really? Uh, 
oh, I can't get the French word, but it's that kitchen shop that has all the beautiful, like, uh, sort of the tab. Yeah. It's happening walking along. It's like, oh my God, look at all of that. Like the chrome mixers. <laughs> and my mind goes like, <laughs> so I definitely, I have to work with my, my fantasies, but um, there's a predominance of my mind defaulting. Like when this computer goes to its sort of sleep mode and it plays a certain thing on the screen, my mind, when it sort of defaults into its sleep mode, will either be a little fuzzy or a tiny bit crabby. So as a temperament, I've had to really work on that. But I think we all have all three. Some people, I know people like um, Eugene Cash is teaching down below, and so is uh, Anna Douglas. I've known them long enough that they don't have a lot of that floaty, fuzzy um, checked out. Their minds are pretty clear, and so they don't have. But I know some other deluded types where we just we go into that kind of floaty, not not so clear, and take longer to kind of like get our minds organized. Um, you might walk into a room and see like just clothes and books everywhere. That's often a sign of someone who's just not that well organized. Good enough for now? Cup overfloweth. Let's take a um, 10 minute stretch break. We'll come back and we'll move on to the third foundation of mindfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.